Good morning. So glad you were able to tune in with us today. Uh, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus over several weeks. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 27, but we're going to be in all four Gospels, so you can just listen or keep your fingers handy or stop and start it as you wish. But uh, we'll be starting in Matthew 27. By historical standards, the death of Jesus should have been a brief sideshow in a distant province in the greatest empire in the world. Just an interesting event to be written up and filed in some Roman collection of reports on executions. But this death changed the world. Why? Every intelligent person should really ask themselves why. Well, of course, this death, this man's death, led to the start of a new religion that turned out in some form to be the leading faith on planet Earth. So, okay, that's true. It, uh, it did do that. Uh, again, why? Why did it do that? Why it was special about it? Well, there's two big reasons. For one, Jesus is the most compelling person who's ever lived. I've never heard of anyone who even comes close. And I've searched all the religions and all the wise teachers, and Jesus just far surpasses everyone. And it just so happens that the most compelling person that ever lived is at the heart and center of the greatest story ever told. The greatest idea that human beings have ever thought and ever embraced. And that idea is centered on the cross of Jesus. So over the next few weeks, as we look at the historical record here in the Gospels, we'll be asking ourselves what it means and what we can learn from Jesus himself during this incredible trial. So we're at a place now in our study of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is going to the cross. Peter denied Jesus and went off to weep. Uh, Judas returned the money that he was given to betray Jesus, and he's gone off to hang himself. So the story, just the narrative structure of it, returns to Jesus. The crucifixion is not described in much detail in any of the Gospels. And that may be because in the first century it was very common and its horrors were quite well known. The great Roman orator Cicero, two generations before Jesus' time, said, even the mere word cross must remain far, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes, and their ears. And that was one of his great oratorical speeches about a Roman citizen that had been crucified. And really he's talking about it should be far from the idea of a Roman ever having to submit to some kind of cruel punishment like that. And of course it was illegal to do that, to crucify a Roman citizen. But by the time of Christ, crucifixion was very common. Uh, and it was not done off in a corner away from eyes and ears of anybody that lived in the Roman Empire the most horrible of deaths was meant to be seen out in public along roadways as a deterrent and eventually as entertainment. Archaeologists have actually found an advertisement for a gladiator show in some remote part of the empire and there was sort of a special feature on the advertisement that they were going to be crucifying some people uh, in front of you. So. Uh, that's hard to imagine that as entertainment, this incredible torment. I mean, I can kind of at least understand people wanting to go see guys fight. Uh, at least that's sort of a sport. But just to watch people in utter agony 
um, struggling uh, till, la till their last breath. I, I, it's hard to imagine that, but that's the kind of world that they lived in in the first century. So maybe there was no need for details in the gospel records, but I, I wonder if it may also be true that the gruesome details really aren't the main point. And while we often focus on the excruciating details, excruciating, there's that word, you know, excrucis, the word crux there is the word for cross, and that's where that's coming from. So the word excruciating literally means out of the cross or from the cross. It entered our language that way. So the Gospels focus on, on words, on people, and events surrounding the crucifixion. So the crucifixion itself is not described in great detail. And it is there in those things, the, the people and the words and the events around the crucifixion, that's where we're going to find our meaning as to what it was all about, what happened, and why that particular death changed the world. It answers our why questions. So the first thing that happens after Pilate gives Jesus over to crucifixion is the long walk to the place of execution. Um, by Jewish law and custom, it had to be outside the city of Jerusalem. So there was already an execution scheduled for that day, uh, two robbers. So Jesus makes the third person. And ordinarily, a, a crucifixion party would have been fairly small, the, the condemned, and then about a dozen legionaries and a centurion, an officer. But on that day, Luke's gospel says a great multitude was present and followed the procession, this walk. So they were there along the way and following along the way, a, a large crowd of people. And I'm sure there would have been... Uh, many more soldiers assigned that day just for crowd control and keeping things peaceful. So the procession is formed and it, and it moves out from the place of judgment. And the condemned are, are bearing their own crosses or more, most likely just the cross beam to which their hands will be nailed eventually. And they're going to carry this down through the streets of Jerusalem. So the walk is meant to be humiliating uh, and, and a warning to everyone that would see them passing by about what happens to serious lawbreakers. And as they proceed, and probably near or just outside the city gate, uh, Jesus simply can't go any farther physically. He, uh, he can't carry that weight anymore. The beatings, especially the scourging, which is extremely destructive of the human body, have robbed him of all of his strength. So Matthew 27, verse 32 says, As they were coming out, so that's why we think this was near the gate, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. So he's from Cyrene, that's North Africa, uh, Libya today. And so he came 800 miles to keep the Passover. The other Gospels tell us that Simon was coming in. So he's coming from his distant country. We don't know if he stayed nearby or anything like that. He probably did. But he's coming into the city while they're going out of the city. So he was not part of this multitude following Jesus out. And probably he knew nothing about what was going on. So he was likely coming in for the 9 a.m. ceremonies at the temple. I mean, this is Passover weekend here. So um, he's there for the pilgrimage. So he sees a prisoner uh, crowned with thorns falling under the weight of this beam and maybe he feels a firm grip on his shoulder. Pick up that beam, sir. And this Roman soldier says to him, pick it up. Now you might remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, whoever forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. 
And I think for a modern ear, we'd say, well, who would force somebody to go one mile? Well, that was actually a law. The Roman overlords had the right to compel subject people to serve them up to a point. So it wasn't outrageous, but if a Roman soldier had a need for some physical assistance in some project they were doing or some place they were going, they could grab somebody and make them carry for a mile, whatever the burden might be, or, or put them to work for a certain amount of time. So this Roman soldier could compel that. And that's what he's doing to, to Siren of Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene. So Jesus said his people should not grumble about that kind of service, but volunteer. That's why he's saying, that's why we get go the extra mile. We should volunteer to do that. We shouldn't grumble about it. That's putting love into action in the harsh realities of life, something we should not forget about. So this is shining a light, really, this commandment to go the extra mile. But Simon had never heard of a teaching like that. He's from North Africa. He hasn't been in Israel to hear Jesus as far as we know. So he's pressed into service for a mile, and he does shoulder the cross for Jesus. Now, who knows what Simon was thinking? It's a very odd incident uh, there's something about the whole scene, just the size of the crowd, the, the interest in these three condemned men, though, from his point of view. The one who fell under the weight, he's wearing a crown of thorns. And there's a sign being carried before him that says, the king of the Jews. So that's strange. Uh, then Jesus himself, his demeanor, his dignity and pain, his strength, even his love, um, it's an amazing experience for Simon, and it's also a divine appointment for him. We don't know Simon's personal story after his encounter with Jesus, but Mark's gospel tells us something rather astounding. In Mark's gospel, he tells us the Christ, he's telling the Christians who are reading it, us or anybody that would pick it up and, and read it, for the Christian, especially in the first century, it's something they might have heard before or um, a story about this man. Because Mark 15.21 says, They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Alexander and Rufus, that, that's another historical marker. That's another one. We've talked about those before. This is a real event with real people. So when you're, you know, when you're making up a story, you don't tell your readers, Hey, this Simon... He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You don't make up stuff like that. That's actually real. So Simon's boys had to have been well known in the Christian community. It's just another example of a really clear historical marker in the Gospels. Simon must have become a Christian, but uh, maybe he stayed and saw the whole events with relationship to the cross and Jesus dying and the events that happened right after that, which are incredible, and we'll be getting to those. Um, Maybe he stayed there through Pentecost and heard Peter preach on, the, on that Pentecost day and uh, became a believer then. But somewhere, what the cross was all about, the meaning of it, the why, uh, became real to him. So he believed in Jesus at some point and raised Christian sons. In fact, it's widely accepted that Mark's gospel was specifically written to Rome, a Roman audience. And most interestingly, at the very end of Paul's letter to the Romans, the city of Rome, the church there in Rome, 
He greets all kinds of people. It's a very long section. And he says in Romans 16, 13, he says, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Now, are we, do we know for sure that's the same Rufus, son of Simon of Cyrene? No, but that's very possible, very likely, actually. So, uh, very possible. So, with Simon's aid, Jesus walks to the place of execution. And while they're moving on uh, among this multitude, there are women there who were, in Luke's words, mourning and lamenting him. So some people are really sad about what they're seeing and the, just the tragedy of the situation and the suffering Jesus is going through. And they're grieving at the sight of the master, the, the rabbi, bloodied and beaten, walking to his death. It was only five days before that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as the son of David. So these might have been people that were part of that crowd uh, cheering him on. Hosanna to the son of David, you know, Messiah has come. So this is a nightmare for them. And Luke tells us that Jesus turned to them and said, this is Luke 23, 28, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? There's a lot of depth in that. Um, this is prophecy. He's talking about what will come a generation away during the Jewish war uh, with Rome. That, would, that war would start a, about 33 years after this event here where Jesus is walking down the road here. So he's turning to them and he's saying, your children and you, if you live that long, are going to experience something far worse for you. So Jesus' suffering is ordained for the salvation of sinners. And Jesus' suffering will be a, a consequence. Um, it's going to have the consequence of Israel's suffering. So Jesus' rejection will have for Israel the consequence of having rejected God's Son, rejected the Messiah. So we have from the first century a, a detailed eyewitness account of the fall of Jerusalem to a merciless Roman army. So that's what Jesus is talking about that day that's coming, when it would be much better not to have children. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was actually there at the fall of Jerusalem. And with significant details, he describes a, a very long siege. Um, the city had completely run out of food, and people were eating their children and other people, and uh, they were just desperate. And if they're if you were there at the fall of Jerusalem, you wouldn't see one cross. You would see hundreds and hundreds of crosses in very exotic configurations. In fact, Josephus says as people tried to flee the city either to the Roman lines for shelter or through the Roman lines to try to escape, they were caught and tortured so that you could see them being tortured from the walls of Jerusalem. And that was to hope the hope of the Romans was to, by being so merciless, they would uh, make the city submit more quickly. He says of the soldiers, quote, quoting Josephus, out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught, one after one way and another after another way, 
to the crosses by way of a jest. In other words, they nailed people in funny positions to crosses uh, for humor. When their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for bodies. It was just a sea of tortured people nailed to crosses. So Jesus sees all of that coming. So he's warning his people. Some people find Jesus' words here a bit shocking. Uh, should, really have he, should he have rebuked these women in this particular way? I mean, they were sympathetic to him. He's not really rebuking them. He's just telling them that um, they're really grieving the wrong thing because he chose to be there. But what's coming on Israel is going to be so much more destructive. And I think, like we discussed last time, when we talked about remorse uh, versus repentance, how Judas had remorse but not repentance. Uh, remorse, we said, doesn't have any spiritual value unless there's faith. And with faith, it becomes repentance, which is a good thing. But in a similar way, sympathy for Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of value without faith. Uh, he doesn't seek sympathy even today, I think many people who just hate suffering of any kind could sympathize with Jesus. People can lament his suffering, just like those women were lamenting that. Artists can paint sad paintings of the crucifixion. Composers can write sad music about it. Dramatic poems and films can be made. But without faith, it's not beneficial at all. It's a waste of time. Jesus' suffering is often used to further political agendas, um, Marxist liberation theology, which was huge in South America, heavily emphasized the suffering of Jesus, but only as a way to turn the poor against the rich. And there's a new form of that in America right now. You know, when I was a kid, um, Jesus was used as a popular counterculture symbol, not by Christians, but by people that wanted to shake up the system. My own pastor, when I was a child in Sunday school, on Easter Sunday, he gave a lecture to all the Sunday school students, and he described the crucifixion in great detail, something the Gospels actually don't do. But he went through all the pain of it and how Jesus struggled and the rough wood on his back and having to push up to breathe and the, the whole thing. And, and then at the end of that, he said, with great earnestness, and that's why capital punishment is a bad thing. He didn't talk about salvation. He didn't talk about Jesus bearing sins. He didn't talk about the reconciliation with God. He didn't talk about the why of it. He used it as a political tool to uh, turn the minds of children against capital punishment. I, I, even as a child and an unbeliever, I know that was ridiculous. I, I just saw through that right away. I, said, I know there's more to it than that. I know the suffering of Jesus is about something more than that. I knew that. But it makes sense to use it because people are moved by the idea of a good man suffering under the arm of cruel authority. I mean, that's a powerful motivator, right? So people use it, but they lament it, but it, not in a way that's beneficial. That Jesus, the suffering Jesus, just the innocent man suffering, that's not the Savior. Uh, we dishonor him by ignoring why he died on the cross. So it's wasted emotion to weep for his pain when you reject the very purpose of that pain. Don't do that. He died to reconcile us to God, to be our Passover sacrifice. So grief for his suffering while rejecting that reconciliation is tragic. Jesus' words to these women, these weeping women, is intended to help 
remove the spiritual blindness that Israel had. They needed to wake up to what this all meant for them. And that's why he says it. It's really an act of kindness. These ladies heard him and hopefully they would remember. Perhaps some of them, like Simon of Cyrene, would follow the risen Jesus uh, one day after Peter preached on Pentecost or maybe in some time after that. But the nation, through his words to them, is told what's coming. And just three decades later, when Israel decided to rebel against Rome, all of these things came to be. Destruction and violence on a scale really hard to imagine. It would be a blessing not to have children when that happened. It would, people would cry out to the hills to cover them and bury them from the Roman machine, the Roman barbarism, as it ground them up. And that's when the tree became dry. When Jesus talks about um, the dry times and, and the green tree. Um, no life, no vitality in that day, that future day. Um, Israel was under the Roman thumb, but in Jesus' time, it was economically prosperous. Uh, the peace of Rome meant that the Jews had very little to fear from local enemies because Rome just kept everything sort of pacified. In a, in a sense, it was green. I mean, there, you could live a good life during that time. And Jesus is saying, if this, the, the murder of the Son of God, the murder of the Messiah, happens when things are green, just imagine what it's going to be like when things are dry, when the conditions are so, so bad. So, the procession moves on toward Calvary. Matthew 27, 33 says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, we often call it Calvary, and that comes right out of the Latin word for skull, which is um, calvarium. So, when we talk about Calvary, we're talking about the top part of your head, this, the skull, and uh, that's what they called this particular place. So when they arrive, the condemned men are offered a rather unusual drink in verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. So Matthew uh, doesn't say who gave Jesus the drink. Um, Alfred Edersheim, who was a rabbinical um, scholar who became a Christian uh, in the last century, well, actually two centuries ago now in the 1800s, he cites Jewish sources that say that this was a Jewish practice, um, possibly administered by a kind of a ladies' charitable society uh, in Jerusalem. And, and the brew was meant to dull, in some measure, your sensibilities so you would feel less pain. The Romans wouldn't offer you that kind of benefit, but the Jews apparently did do that, even for these uh, executions for anybody during that particular time. So after his long night, after his six trials... After the beatings and the brutal scourging, Jesus was very thirsty. So he takes it, and he tastes it, but then when he realizes what it is, he refuses it. Why refuse it? I'm sure the two robbers drank theirs right down to the dregs. But I think uh, Jesus refused it because drinking it would place him in the role of a victim of the state uh, it would look like his death was imposed on him and he's trying to escape the consequences of some of the suffering they're imposing on him. But it wasn't something happening against his will. It was not that. It is his will in line with the Father's plan to be the Passover lamb for his people. So he doesn't seek any relief from what he came to accomplish. 
So he's going to drink the cup, as he talked about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass away from me, but not as I will, but as thou wilt. He had the cup, and he's going to drink the cup of suffering, not the cup of um, relief here. So his death was a miscarriage of justice, but it was not an accident. He chose it, and he voluntarily went to the cross. So he's not going to numb himself in any way from the pain that's coming. So as soon as this drink is taken, then the soldiers would go to work pretty quickly. They would strip the prisoners, stretch them out. Uh, their limbs would be nailed to the cross, and then they would be hoisted up or raised up in some way. And it was during this moment that when we have the first of seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And I'm confident the soldiers had never heard one of their victims of crucifixion say words like this before. And only Luke records it. So this is in Luke 23:33. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Very famous words there. And even the tense of the Greek verb sort of suggests that he was saying this over a course of time. So that's, that's just the, the essence of what he was saying, but he was praying for God to forgive them. So these are the words which begin the whole ordeal. And J.C. Ryle points out that this is the only time we have recorded that Jesus asks the Father to forgive someone. Jesus forgave many people or declared them forgiven by his own authority. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus plainly says the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So it's pretty interesting that here he's appealing to the Father to forgive rather than just offering direct forgiveness. Why would he do that? Well, I think because on the cross he's taking our place. He's the servant in every sense. He's the sacrifice for us. He actually sort of is us in the sense that he's taking our place. He's in our position. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he suffers in our place as the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice. No sin is going to escape his lips even now. No hostility, no anger at the cruelty of those around him, at the cruelty of the system or the governor or the priests or the soldiers. He's not angry at them. No thoughts that he have has during that time is going to mar his perfection, his sinlessness. He's not bitter. And he's still on a mission here. Uh, he declared himself that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And on the cross, he can do that by, of course, enduring the penalty of God's wrath against him, but also in his prayers. So he's come to seek and to save the lost. What kind of an effect would it have on those present who are doing this to him to hear him asking God to forgive them? That's seeking and saving the lost, his demeanor, his compassion. The last thing the soldiers do before they settle in for a long watch and a game of dice is to attach the sign over his head um, that lists his crime. So Matthew 27, 35 says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. 
Some of the other Gospels have the sign say, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Same idea. So Matthew mentions that last, I think, so it will have its full effect when you really think about Jesus being nailed up there. And then he tells us what was on that sign. Really interesting choice of words. Um, Governor Pilate chose the language that was to go on the sign. And it's a bit of a slap at the chief priests for manipulating him into sentencing Jesus, which he knew was wrong to do. And they didn't like it. In fact, John's gospel in John chapter 19, verse 19, it says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. His crime was claiming to be the king of the Jews, right? But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And he just let that settle into their little minds. It's a remarkable bit, a remarkable bit of irony here that the sign tells the exact truth. Here's the king that God sent to his people, promised from long ago, staked out alive by the desire of the leaders of Israel, the priests and the elders. So for Jesus, the physical agony is almost beyond description. But as I said, none of the Gospels describe that in any kind of detail. Matthew says it super simply in verse 35. It just says, and when they had crucified him. He didn't go through describing the hammering and the nails and the whole process there. Just a word, crucified. We have to read into that word all that we know about crucifixion because the Gospels do not describe it. Matthew does, however, take a lot of space in his account describing what happened once Jesus was lifted up and suspended by the nails through his flesh. And it was not quiet while he hung there. No holy hush sort of fell upon the multitude that watched. Jesus only heard a stream of jeering and mockery. And that Matthew gives details about. Matthew 27, 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, verse 41 says, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And then it says the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. That's the human condition being expressed in snarls and jeers and mockery at the son of God. People still mock him all the time. It's not enough to see him in agony. They have to torment him. It's not enough to see him helpless. It's not enough to see that he has no chance to survive, that this is his death, that they've gotten what they want. 
They just have to mock him too. Peter, Peter in his first letter, 1 Peter, um, says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So he's our example in this. How do you handle mockery and abuse? J.R. Miller says, uh, none of us can live long in the thick of life and not sometimes be touched rudely, perhaps even cruelly by others. How shall we endure the things which hurt and wound us? We know what Jesus would do, what he actually said and did. They drove the nails into his gentle hands, and as the iron went crashing through his tender flesh, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They hung him on the cross, but in answer to that cruelty, instead of a withering curse upon the world, he wrought salvation there for men. That's so true and beautiful. He did do that. And we are called to follow in his steps to be like him. He is our model in seeking the good for those that torment us, for those who are our enemies. You can tell where a person is spiritually by how they're dealing with their enemies. And it can be a real struggle, can't it? But that's what we're called to be, to be like Christ, to walk in his steps. Jesus um, taught us to love our enemies. And when pushed him to shove in the worst possible circumstance imaginable, that's what he did. He loved his enemies. He's concerned for them, even as they're pounding nails through his limbs. He dies as a redeemer of souls, full of the love of God. And our purpose as Christians in this world is to have that same redemptive goal. He is the redeemer, but we are heralds of the redemption that he wrought for humanity. We are the voice of God's compassion to lost people. Jesus looks in those hard soldiers' eyes and has compassion. He sees lost souls. And when he sees the faces of jeering priests and mocking elders, their faces just twisted with hate, he sees lost souls. He doesn't ask for justice. He asks for forgiveness from the Lord and the judge of the world. Forgiveness for them. He came to reconcile sinners to God. Sinners like you, sinners like me. That's why he came. That is the way of the cross, to bring the lost home. So as reconciled people, we take forth the word of God and what he did, and we must live it out. Jesus called us to be light, so do shine for him. Do shine. Okay, we have to stop there for today. The experience of Jesus on the cross has just begun, and we're going to continue next time. And one thing we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus' exact experience was foretold a thousand years before it ever happened. It's in the Bible. Let's pray. Lord God, the, the very idea, the picture of Jesus on the cross in our minds uh, is one that calls forth so much from us emotionally. We're sad. We're in awe. It, it's a horror. We admire it. His 
We feel conviction ourselves in our own hearts about our sin. We feel devotion towards Him. We feel joy that He accomplished such a great salvation. So many feelings all at once from this one incredible thing that you designed for our salvation. So let us never become accustomed to the, the wonder of His person and your great plan, Father, your plan for our salvation. The blood of Jesus is called precious in the Bible. May it ever be so in our hearts. May we never get tired of this story. In His name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll keep going next, next week. We'll see you then.